Well, good evening, everyone. Wow, welcome inside after a beautiful afternoon to be around, and glad you're here with us as we continue learning about our Baptist heritage and uh, looking at uh, some of the events that uh, brought the Baptist as, as a group, hard to say a denomination yet, but at least in the 1600s they were a group who were very biblically minded. And uh, we'll get them, we'll finally get some Baptists to America before we finish here tonight. So that'll be a good place to be for sure. And uh, we'll continue on this. Right here we are at the end of, end of March. So April's sneaking up on us real quick. And uh, so we'll finish this, I'm sure, by the end of April. And uh, probably have a good, uh, a good uh, overview of all the details of being a Baptist and understanding the history of it. Well, let's pray. Hope you've had a great afternoon and uh, certainly a beautiful time to be out this evening. So uh, we'll uh, try to make the best use of our time. Father, thank you for our day and for our opportunity to gather this morning to worship, to praise, to hear your word as it uh, impacts our hearts and our lives. Thank you for the time we can gather this evening. I pray that you'll bless each of the Bible study groups tonight. And I pray that you'll bless our time as we learn something of the generations before us who were committed to your word. And may it draw us closer to you by what we learn and uh, equally make us mindful of how we can be and should be committed to be a testimony of your grace and uh, of your saving power through Christ our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Well, so we have uh, saw last week where the Baptists really kind of come into the equation right about the early 1600s. And again, it's impossible to talk about Baptist history and not talk about history of England for a little bit. So there's some parallels. We'll start to drift away from some of that, but it's impossible to get away from it. So our half step back tonight is to bring us to a reminder of who some of the important players are in the monarchy of England, because that's where all this is happening. And uh, we introduce first, uh, in this part of our lesson anyway, to King James I. And King James comes to the throne, remember, at the death of Queen Elizabeth. As a matter of fact, let's see, that would have been 420 years ago this past week. James rode from Scotland into London the very, at the end of March, and uh, he assigned, was assigned to be the king in that transition time. Uh, Elizabeth had died earlier in the month, and a few weeks later, he rides into town uh, with a lot of pomp and circumstance, no doubt, to welcome the new king of England. He will begin a new reign. The Tudor family that had preceded him will die with Queen Elizabeth in 1603. And now stepping into the role of monarch is James, who is a member of the Stuart family. And so we will follow the Stuart family on through the 1600s and see their impact. And I'll give you a little preview of that even before we finish the slide. So King James I. King James will rule from 1603 to 1625. Imagine having a ruler for 22 years. That's just beyond our comprehension. Um, and he will be followed by his son and grandsons in that lineage. So King James I is an important character. He, of course, is the monarch of England when the New Bible translation, uh, that's sort of a parallel story here too, when the New Bible translation is approved, that begins at the Hampton Court Conference in January of 1604. All of the church leaders of England were gathered at the palace, the Hampton Palace it's called, Hampton Court Palace, and King James met with them for just a few days. The biggest thing to come out of that meeting was a need for a new English Bible. And so that process begins later that year in 1604. A final product is sent to the printers in 1611. And the rest of they say is Bible history, right? So King James is important from that perspective. We'll, we'll come back to that discussion at a later time too. But for now, we want to at least recognize his place in this historical timeline. England at the time really had no religious freedom. Either you were a member of the Church of England or you were considered a traitor. All the dissenters, those who said, this is not my conviction, this is not my belief, 
I'm a Christian, but I do not follow those things, you would be considered a traitor to the nation because you didn't go to the national church and would not participate. And believe me, they kept names. And that meant you were subject to be arrested or imprisoned or put to death or possibly all three. And we've got some examples of that for sure. As James will occupy the monarchy of England for the first quarter century of the 1600s, his son, Charles I, and his two grandsons from Charles, Charles II, and um, ah, that's wrong up there. I should say Charles the Charles the First and Charles the Second. Yeah, okay, we get it all right. And then there's another grandson that is James the Second. None of them were particularly favorable to anyone who wanted religious freedom. It was the biggest hot button issue of the day. Would there ever be any allowance to be something other than a member of the Church of England, even if you had no convictions that aligned with the Church of England? There will be a brief period of about 10 years there, uh, we'll get to that a little later, when yes, there was an opportunity, to, but only because there was no king in England. There's a break in this. So we'll take a look at some of those Charleses and Jameses as we move forward in some other studies. Again, a recap of kind of where we are now historically too. We've seen the Roman Catholic Church grow and develop through the Middle Ages. From that, the Church of England broke off in 1534 under Henry VIII to start now a new phase of the Christian Church in England. But it would, instead of being headed by the Pope, it was headed by the King. Of course, a few decades later, those within that church saw that there was still a lot of Catholicism, and they wanted to purify the church to get rid of all these Catholic doctrines and go to biblical teaching only. They became known, of course, as the Puritans. The Puritan group ran into some brick walls, obviously. They're fighting against the establishment of the church and the king, too, really. So they got... They got less than desirable consequences, but they were heard sometimes. Those who saw themselves unable to stay in that scenario, hey, look, we, we see problems here, and no matter what we say, nobody listens to us. They're not moving any direction. They just said, let's separate from the Church of England and become separatists. That's where that name comes from. But to separate from the Church of England really meant for your own life you had to separate from England itself. And so two primary congregations will move from England to Holland. They both go to Amsterdam first. One group finds Amsterdam very unsettling. It'd be like moving from, I don't know, Greensboro, North Carolina to New York City. It was just too big and too, too action-driven, and they just were not comfortable there. They didn't like the, what their children were exposed to. So they would move to another city in Holland called um, Wyland, Holland. This group will eventually find their way back to England in the early 1610s, only then to reassemble themselves and kind of live under the radar, right, for a while, to reassemble themselves and finally to come to America. That was the only place they saw as an option for them, to go to a place, and of course we know them as the pilgrims. So those separatists in that move begin a process. Now we look back on history and sort of see where this, grow, this goes. So indeed, one group will move back to England just long enough to get their supplies, gather everyone, get their necessary funding for the voyage, and make travel plans to come to America. And that's the story of the pilgrims. Of course, that's another line of Christians, which are not an integral part of the Baptists. They'll cross paths in decades later, but for now, we send the pilgrims on their way and say bon voyage to them. In the meanwhile, there's another group of Christians at Second Congregation that still remains in Amsterdam. And there in Amsterdam, Holland, in 1608, 1609, they will create the first 
um, Baptist church or Bap what we would call, but they did not call themselves Baptists. What we would look back at now is that they were the first group that we would call Baptists, but they did not call themselves Baptists. They just were still separatists. Um, we mentioned last week, this group is led by John Smith and Thomas Helwes. These two, this group of about 60 that they had, so, you know, a little bigger than this group here tonight, this group of about 60 themselves would, would uh, in the months ahead, find themselves splitting. Because John Smith encountered the Mennonites of Holland. Remember, the Mennonites are only on European soil. He had never encountered them in England. They weren't there, of course. But when he became exposed to them in Holland, he immediately thought this was a biblically-based Christian group that he could identify with. And they had been searching. They didn't know what to do. Remember, this is a group, too, that much like the Mennonites, began to believe in believers' baptism. That you, don't, you don't baptize children. Baptism is an event for those who confess Christ as Lord and Savior. Then you're baptized. Repentance first, baptism second. And in Holland, they found companionship with the beliefs of the Mennonites. So Smith... Helwes both heard the appeal of the Mennonites. Smith was convinced that they should go join them. This is the most biblically based group we've encountered. They're doing things that we know are right. Let's go join them. Smith took about two-thirds of that 60, about 40, with him to go become Mennonites. And they were sort of just blended in with the Mennonites. Helwes and his 20 or so that were left decided to go back to England. They had very much come under a, a conviction that we can't stay here. We are better to go back to England and face whatever we have to face for our faith. That's a pretty bold commitment. And indeed, once they return, it's not terribly long afterwards, they do assemble themselves in a congregation, again, we would say, here's the first Baptist group in England. This would be 1611, 1612. They would be the first group there. But again, you're a public outlaw if you're something other than a member of the Church of England. And Thomas Helwes was arrested and put in prison for his faith, and especially as a leader of this group. And in 1616, he will die in prison. Still a relatively young man in his 40s. While he was in prison, he wrote um, uh, a couple of documents, but the, the one that really sort of set him apart was this one, a short declaration of the mystery of iniquity, it's called. And it's basically an appeal um, from his con biblical convictions. And it was to be a document that stirred up lots of conversation and interest. But he would find no relief from the political system. And he would die in prison in 1616 for his convictions there in England, right? So the early Baptist struggled, obviously, initially under King James who had no sympathy for this group, and then followed after 1625 by his son, Charles I. And then later, his grandson, Charles II. Charles I would be next in line to be king in 1625 in England. And like his father before him, he had no sympathy for this group. They maintained the persecution. They had to go pretty much underground, go into hiding. But they weren't going to leave England unlike the group of the pilgrims who are, you know, going through their own struggles in the New World, they stayed in England. What developed then was a group primarily based in, in and around London that became the early Baptist. Again, a term they did not call themselves. That will not happen for a couple of decades, actually. 
but they are a dissenting group or a separate group from the Church of England. And what developed was three, again, we're sort of fast-forwarding through a couple of decades here, what developed were three distinct branches of Baptist teaching and belief. One would be the congregational connections that would help to play into these three different groups that I will talk about in a minute. Early Baptist beliefs, they believed in the congregational. Now remember, this is a very different structure than what England was used to. England had this hierarchy, right? The king of England is the head of the church. The king of England appointed the um, bishop of Westminster. And the bishop of Westminster appointed all the other bishops. And just down the line you go. There's this huge structure to the church. Well, a movement that started in the early, uh, I'm sorry, in the late 1500s was the congregational movement. I mentioned last week we owe that movement to the name Robert Brown. He thought that churches should be independent operating congregations. Wow, what an amazing idea. Uh, by the way, that's who we are. Independent operating congregation. And so as these congregations began to start, we'd say today church planning, right? They knew that they were better together. They would strengthen each other together. So one of the things the early Baptists were very much in favor of was getting congregations to help support each other. And then they appointed a general council. The general council, had, which would have representatives from each church, had no authority over the churches. They were just there to answer questions or help. And what churches would do, they would say, well, somebody's come in with this question or this issue, or we've got a discipline problem in the church. How do we handle it? They send it to the local general council, and they'd come back with their recommendation. So the Baptists from early on have been engaged in this churches helping churches or congregations helping congregations. And it's still very true today. Uh, locally here in the Triad area, there's, uh, to give you one example, among many in North Carolina, but here in the Triad area, the Piedmont Baptist Association does the very same thing. Churches are stronger together, better together. So that's a thing. Something that came along with the early Baptist also is something I would suppose most of you have not heard of, and that is called the six principles of a church. This is built upon two verses in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Here's what those verses say. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, better wording there would be, the better way to understand it would be leaving the foundational principles, that word will be in the verse a little bit. Leaving the beginnings, the foundation. Leaving, growing up, right? Don't, don't, don't stay down here in just the foundation. It's time to grow and mature. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto maturity or perfection, depends on which translation you read, let us go unto maturity and laying again the foundation of, and here's six things. So what they saw in these two verses are six things that are crucial for a church. So they said, here's how we'll build our churches upon these six things from Hebrews 6 verses 1 and 2. The verse continues with these six things. Repentance from dead works. Repentance is always first. You repent of your sins. You repent of your desire to think you can achieve your relationship with God by your own works, right? Dead works. Repentance from dead works, first. Second would be faith toward God. Repentance always comes first and then faith. What comes after faith? Baptism. The doctrine of baptisms, plural. That's the way it's used in the verse. It's plural because we would say two baptisms. One is the water baptism, and the one is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, those are great discussions, but we're not going to chase that rabbit trail tonight. The doctrine of baptisms is also in that verse. And then, at, at the beginning of verse 2, and then the laying on of hands. Now, the, the phrase laying on of hands gets interpreted by lots of different Christian groups in different ways. So here's what the Baptists did with it. Here's what they began to teach. 
A person comes to, let's go down the list. A person repents of their sin. They hear the gospel. They recognize they're a sinner. Not real hard to recognize that. It's real hard to admit it sometimes. They repent from their sins. They put their faith in God through Christ, right? Step two. Step three, at their, at their um, repentance, at their conversion or at their born-again experience, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then what follows that is a water baptism. There's your two baptisms. A water baptism. The tradition among the early Baptists was this. After a person was baptized, the pastor would take that individual in front of the congregation and lay their hands on them and say something over them to accept them into the fellowship of this church. Now think about that for a moment, because probably most of us have not seen that. That's kind of one of those traditions that got lost a long time ago. It's like saying to someone, we receive, upon your profession of faith, upon your baptism, upon your desire to be part of this congregation, the pastor would say, I receive you on behalf of this congregation into membership. Now, if we, if we say anything with that, we'd say membership, right? Membership in a church, right? They would teach the resurrection, very appropriate coming up upon Easter. And then they would teach the eternal state of man and the eternal judgment that awaits. These six principles became core to the founding of those early Baptist congregations. And there's some good things to think about through that. But again, that's, that's enough for our time here tonight. After the, these two principles then, or after these two points, the next thing is pastors and congregations for life. It became the expectation among Baptist congregations that if we call someone to be the pastor, it's a parallel almost like to a wedding. And we are committing to you, pastor, to lead us, and we ask you to commit to us so that we will follow you, and we expect this to be a death-do-us-part kind of relationship. Not so much anymore. I'll come back to this point, but keep it in mind that they had an emphasis upon pastors being long committed. And to go back and read through a few decades of many churches who had pastors, I'm thankful to say, like Pastor Paul has for us, who can say 40 years, 50 years, sometimes more than 50 years. And they died in that position or until their health got so bad. Here's a term that was also part of the early Baptist beliefs, endogamy. That's probably not a word you've used at all this week. You haven't even seen it on a crossword puzzle, I bet. Endogamy, right? Monogamy is one man, one woman. Polygamy is one married to several. Endogamy means married to someone within the same belief system. So this was, in essence... Baptist marrying Baptist, right? And if you did not do that, church covenants often had within them the phrase that said, if you marry outside the Baptist realm, then you can be excommunicated from the church and your membership is void. Boy, that, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? But again, that was one of the things they taught in those early Baptist congregations. Makes me glad I married a Baptist girl. Okay. Stole her from another good Baptist church. Endogamy. How about this one? No congregational singing. Can you believe Baptists didn't want to sing? It just it almost goes against our culture now, doesn't it? So what was their music like? Well, very limited for sure. And if there was singing, it was done by one person. Actually, this was not unique to the Baptist. It was true through much of the Church of England. The culture of the day did not have this singing. Didn't have groups, didn't have congregations. You just had one person who might, would come and sing. It was not until the Reformers, and this would have been a decade or so earlier, maybe a century earlier, 
in Europe began to do congregational singing. And that really goes back to, to the reformers of Lutheran churches who began to incorporate music as congregation. Remember, Martin Luther's one of the great hymn writers of his generation. We still sing a hymn, right? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark ever standing. That's a Martin Luther song. The Lutherans picked up on that congregational thought. When John Knox went to Europe, of course, John Knox is coming out of Scotland as a Presbyterian, he's the same way. They, they didn't know what congregational singing was. When he goes to Europe and hears congregational singing, it touched his heart like never before. He went back and took congregational singing to the Church of Scotland. For the first time in his life, he heard a congregation sing. But no congregational singing was a standard practice of most of those early Baptist churches, particularly because it just wasn't part of the culture that they had known. So they just kind of continued it. So some interesting, interesting congregations begin to arise and multiply. Now again, they're still pretty much underground. We're moving through the 1600s here. One of the churches that's worth mentioning, one of the Baptist churches in London, is going to be pastored by three very influential voices. We might call these parallel to the founding fathers of the London Baptists, of those English Baptists. Henry Jacob, John Lathrop, and Henry Jesse all were succeeding pastors of the same church. And because this church had some capacity to exist, this became very much an influential church of the Baptist. It is called the JLJ Church for the last name of those three pastors. And this church began to do some things that were a little more structural as a church. You know what they were still wrestling with? It sounds odd to us, but again, they're still early in being Baptist, and they're still trying to figure these things out. They were still debating among themselves how to baptize someone. They were very content to either sprinkle or pour, right? They were debating the idea about whether or not you should be immersed. That idea was starting to play into their thoughts. So much so that they sent, one, at least one time, they sent a member to Europe to go meet the Mennonites and see how they did immersion baptism. No one had ever seen it. So this church starts to do that. And so we have a record of the very first baptism by immersion in 1642. So look how many decades we've, we've quickly passed a few decades from the early 1600s. So in 1642, 43 members of this church were baptized by immersion, the first record account of baptism by immersion in the Thames River. By the way, it was January. They'd have probably had 153 if they'd done it in July, right? But um, so we have record of that. So that's, a, again, a step. From this church, there would be what some will call a split. And indeed, there were some differences of a few things that, you know, church splits happen. But this group, Spillsbury, takes a group, and they take most of what they had learned under the JLJ church, and they go out and sort of duplicate themselves, right? The one thing that was different about the church group that Spillsbury took was that they were willing to accept the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Why was that important? Because in order to be a citizen of England, you had to be baptized in the Church of England as a child. So here's what parents in these congregations found themselves doing. Do I deny my child citizenship? in England by refusing to baptize them as a child. So the group that Spillsbury took with him were the ones who said, I am willing to let my child be baptized by sprinkling by the Church of England, and their name officially goes on a document that says they're a true citizen of England. And once that's over, we're going to come back and 
be a part of our church. So again, some parents found themselves in unique situations because of all things that go with that. And so the one example of many family baptism issues, uh, and again, it's hard for us to really get an appreciation for all the baptism issues because we've settled all of them pretty much by now. You know, a few hundred years later, you kind of work these things out. So baptism still was an interesting topic to see and read how they addressed some of the complications that drove, arose with it. What's interesting is to read about this time, these Baptist churches are all getting started in England, or mainly around London, but expanding out for sure, is that there is what historians and writers of the time even will call an appreciation of conscience or a tender conscience, which meant I am willing to let you have some different convictions than I have. Right? You hear that? There might be some differences we have, but they are secondary or they are lower issues that do not impact the essentials of the gospel. So an appreciation of conscience, again, a term that, of the era that I think has some application all through church history, especially as we follow the Baptist line. Appreciation of conscience or tender conscience. That might not be the way I would do it, but that's between you and your local pastor and your church, right? I mean, that's kind of that idea. So there's some overview of a few things that play into that. Let's talk about a few people of the time period, because there's always some people we want to meet. We mentioned um, Jacob, Lathrop, and Jesse. But let's talk about a few other people of this time period, early, mid-1600s. One is John Bunyan. You might know the name John Bunyan. He was a Baptist preacher under Charles uh, II. And this is, Charles II is King James' grandson. He takes over the throne after his father, Charles I, dies. Well, was executed, it's a better way to say it. And later, and then there's a period of time of about 10 years where England does not have a king. If you know the name Oliver Cromwell. And in 1660, Charles II is called back from France or allowed back to become the king of England again. Again, England has a king. And you know what? Just like his father before him, Charles I, just like his grandfather, James I, he had little tolerance for these people who now have an identity. My grandfather knew them as separatists, but I know them as Baptists. And I want to put down a strong defense as to why these people are not going to be tolerated in my kingdom. And so he went after some of the pastors, of which John Bunyan was one. John Bunyan was imprisoned at age 32. When he was arrested and imprisoned, his wife was pregnant. The stress of that event sent her into labor and the child would die. John Bunyan would then spend the next 12 years in prison for his stand as a Baptist, for not being authorized by the Church of England. He would also go to prison, even after his release, he would go back to prison for about a year in 1675. During Bunyan's life, his adult life, most of which was spent, or a good chunk of it was spent in prison for being a Baptist, he would write nine books. Two sort of stand out in history, and they're still recommended and read today. The first one is his own personal autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, is the book he titles his own life story, and about the trials and troubles he went through. The second one is no doubt more widely known, and you've probably heard of this one, The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, there's lots of versions of this book. It is still in print today. And I would highly recommend somewhere around middle school or so you read this to your children or grandchildren. It's a story of a man named Christian. It's an allegory. It tells a, it tells a story of which there's always meaning behind the characters and the actions. It's a story of a man named Christian on his travels from the city of desolation which is supposed to represent the world, 
on his way to the celestial city, which is supposed to be heaven. And about all the trials and tribulations and temptations he has to overcome and all the things he has to learn. It's a great allegory of someone who is on the journey through the venture of coming to God. Pilgrim's Progress still very, still very appropriate today. Look, it's been out. It's only been out 300 and about 50, 345 years or so, 350 years. So it's been out for a while. I would highly recommend it. Another thing that developed through this time of the early Baptist is a movement toward establishing doctrine. Doctrine is highly valued among the Baptists, always has been, and I suspect always will be. The writings of Thomas Hellas, called the Declarations of Faith, the Declaration of Faith, was indeed the very first document with its 27 articles that we would say represent Baptist belief. Here's what, here's what I believe about this, here's what I believe about this, right? Hopefully you understand what the doctrinal statement is. That's the first one. But as decades would pass, as churches would become more organized, as churches would even work together, they would begin to formalize their doctrinal statements. And this has been true of generation after generation of Baptists. It's very true of our church. So that in 1644, five Baptist churches in London got together and said, we need to write about what we believe so that we're not confused with other groups. And again, I'll say something that this generation said to their contemporaries. Do not call us Anabaptist. Yes, there's a similarity in names, but they were not Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were like the Mennonites in Europe. They said, no, we are distinct from that group for a lot of reasons. And so in 1644, the first five Baptist churches of London got together, uh, their leadership, and wrote the First London Confession, 1644. It would later be updated, you know, as doctrinal statements tend to be, to address current issues. And in 1677, a second one, and then in 1689, a more refined second one, it really wasn't a third one as much as more as a refined second one, the London Baptist Confession became more widespread, very influential. And a lot of detail, too, by the way. I've got a copy of the 1689 one, and it's a, it's a pretty good little paper, size, uh, paper book size document to read through. But you see how they understood and how they expressed their things in doctrinal stances. What would happen to those doctrinal statements? They would be packed in somebody's collection of items and brought to America too. And these doctrinal writings would therefore influence the American Baptists as they came across to the Atlantic to find their place. It's during this time also that we can talk about a man named Roger Williams as we start to see Baptist influence in America. Roger Williams is one of the more interesting characters of early American colonial period that you would read about, from the, especially from the religious perspective. Extremely intelligent. He, was, he had graduated Oxford, was an ordained priest within the Church of England, um, and was very committed to his faith. Where he got in trouble was, he saw all the problems with the Church of England, too. He comes to America, which, by the time he gets there, has been settled by Englishmen from, for about 30 or so years. Boston is well-established in the area of Salem, Massachusetts. Well-established by the Congregationalists, who were basically Church of England people who came to America. When he gets here, though, he finds himself, everyone's excited because this man has a reputation. What a speaker, what a pastor he's going to be for us. And then they let him in a couple of pulpits to preach, and he preaches how wrong is the Church of England on these doctrinal things. Here's what the Bible says, right? You know what he finds? He finds they're showing him the door on the way out. And by the way, don't do us any favors to not come knocking again because you can't preach here. Matter of fact, if you keep saying these things, we won't even let you stay here. Well, that just sort of bowed Roger Williams up even more. 
And he began to teach and, and, and carry on the conversations in the community. They finally kicked him out. You got to find somewhere else to go. He goes from Boston to Salem or Salem to Boston. He kind of makes his way back and forth and doesn't seem to find a home with any of them. His condemnation of the churches in America was, you're too much like the Church of England. You, you left them. You know, remember? I can hear him in my own mind thinking, why did these people leave the Church of England to come over here and be another Church of England? And so he, he sort of a, you know, independent spirit for sure. And he begins to promote this idea of the book he wrote, Liberty of Conscience, The Bloody Tenet, it's called. Why are, people, why are people in England, the most powerful and supposedly the most free country at the time, being persecuted for their faith? We should all have independent and liberty of faith and religion. Freedom of religion, as it will become to call it, the term we're familiar with. The bloody tenet of persecution for causes of conscience. A lot of words that just simply mean, why can't we practice our faith as we think is right before God? It stirred up not only a controversy in the colonies, but it stirred up a controversy in England. Williams would go from being an Anglican to being a separatist, and he was kind of drifting, didn't know where to go. Some had recommended maybe you're, maybe you're like the Baptist. He latched on to that for a while. And for several months, by the way, after he gets kicked out of Massachusetts, he goes to Rhode Island and finds a community there that he will call Providence in recognition of God's providence in leading him there. And he establishes the charter of Rhode Island. And he establishes a church there. And it was during this time that he had come to realize that he probably identified best with the Baptist. So he is credited as having been the founder of Providence Colony and the first Baptist church in America, 1638. The interesting story about Rogers, or Roger Williams is, he still maintained that independent spirit. And you know what happened after many months with the Baptist sort of hanging over his head? He came to realize, no, that's not really me either. And he kind of went to being a separatist again. He overcomes a lot of challenges. It's a, it's a biography, interesting to read, I believe. And a man with a determined spirit to serve God, but found that there just wasn't a place for him. But he's recognized as certainly one of the leading voices in early colonial America uh, for the founding of the First Baptist Assembly, and that will become the First Baptist Church in America, in Rhode Island. A contemporary of his named John Clark will start another Baptist church in Newport, Rhode Island. And this church today, or this church at the time rather, uh, would continue to be an influential church because Clark retained his Baptist distinctives. And so much more of a Baptist root was settled under the leadership of Clark. You see his dates there. A couple of decades or so will pass, and finally the Baptists find their way into Massachusetts. So the first Baptist church of Massachusetts, a couple of decades later, we'll find, we'll find it being started. And... Um, again, a church with a long history, of course. You get, the, you get the trend here. All the Baptists are in the northeast part of the colonies. Don't worry, they don't stay there. Right? Another name in, the, in this time period of important to Baptist history is William uh, Screven. He will start the first Baptist church in the colony of Maine a couple of decades after that, after Boston, 1680s.
Now remember his name because we're probably, we're going to talk about him early in next week's lesson. He plays back into our picture through another avenue and we're going to pull him back up next week. A few decades after that, right, we're in the 1680s, a few, uh, within three decades after that, 25 years I guess, there are Baptist churches in Philadelphia. Of course, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is the most, Pennsylvania is the most religiously free colony of all. That was under the directive of William Penn, who was given the territory of Pennsylvania, as we know it today, from Charles and King Charles. And, um, and so the Quakers, of course, were the dominant group there, but they welcomed everybody. So the Baptists find themselves in Pennsylvania. Let me make a quick little side note here of absolutely no direct implication to our study, but interesting note worth maybe being familiar with. The colony of Carolina is named after King Charles because in Latin, the name Charles is the name Carolus, shortened for Carol. And so the colonies, originally one, right, of Carolina was identified as King Charles I in honor of him. But then later, when the colonies were split into north and south, it was recognized that they were going to be reassigned after Charles II. So here we are in North Carolina, named after King Charles. Those five churches in Pennsylvania... Again, I put an association together, and they sound very similar. You know, 100 years later, the Baptists were still doing, doing similar things, advising member churches. How do we handle situations within the church, within the community? To warn churches about errant pastors. You know, if, if a pastor had been sort of moved on from a congregation because of some bad decisions or bad actions, they want to make sure other churches knew about it so they didn't find a, a job at another Baptist church. Also, the opportunity to address disorderly churches who weren't following proper Baptist doctrine, to, to maintain harmony among the membership and the Baptists as a whole in the churches, to promote confessions and doctrinal unity that there wasn't disagreements, you know, again, of major conflict between churches, to address important socio-political issues. What was the number one political issue of the day? Even in, the, in the, even the colonial times, was slavery. We'll come back to that topic in a couple of weeks. But they were already beginning to address the issue of slavery in the early 1700s. Education for training up ministers. How was that going to be provided? We need to raise up a new generation of pastors. And every generation faces that reality. How do we accomplish that? How do we provide that? And then to provide a fellowship between church leaders, pastoral fellowships, so that church leaders can build relationships with one another and, again, expand their network and work better, better together in the ministry positions they've been called to. And then lastly, to address the local mission field. How do we reach our community? Now, this is a time before the big push of missions. Baptists will be essential to that. We'll talk more about that next week. But right now, the church is at least in this time frame, are beginning to look at how do we reach our mission field? How do we go into the poor communities and preach the gospel? How do we provide an opportunity of outreach as we know it today, right? So, again, you hear things that just have not changed with Baptist churches. We are doing these things today as an independent congregation of a Baptist church. So there's a little bit of the flavor of almost 100 years of Baptist from England, London particularly, working its way to America and into the greatest cities of our land, of course, Philadelphia and Boston being the two leading cities at the time, and the influence that they would have here in America, for sure. So all, you know what, eventually all these Baptists in the New England states decide, you know, let's go to the real need, let's move down south. So next week we'll start, the, we'll start as part of our journey as a Baptist in America of moving some Baptists from the northern states even all the way down to the wilderness of North Carolina. And uh, we'll see what the, who that Baptist, one particular, who that Baptist was 
and what was his conviction that brought him to the wilderness of North Carolina to take the gospel. And uh, we'll have, uh, I think, a good, a good look at that. Well, let me remind you of a few things coming up uh, this week. They're on the weekly announcements, of course. Uh, remind you, we'll have, um, uh, we're praying for Grief Share. Tuesday, we'll be meeting. We'll have our Wednesday night service here at 7. We continue our question and answers. We'll have uh, day 5 on Thursday. If you're familiar with day 5, come join us. If you're not, 9.15, we'll open the doors. We'll start at 10 o'clock. And then uh, next Saturday is the big kids' day. If you've got anybody that's a fifth grader or under in your family, bring them here. Uh, Saturday, 2 o'clock. They'll start in here, and we'll have a, um, a, um, some time with the kids in here, and they're going to let them go out and do some fun things related to Easter. be done about 3 o'clock or shortly after. And so that'll be a fun day. Be praying for good weather for that, we hope. And uh, then, of course, next Sunday, we look forward to Pastor Nick being back to preach for us. And uh, we celebrate Palm Sunday uh, next Sunday as we approach Easter. Remind you some things Pastor Nick reminds us about this morning. The Easter invite cards, if there's any left, I hope there are. Uh, but in some ways, I hope there's not. Um, but there may be some Easter cards out there. Remember the video that's available we showed you this morning on um, on Facebook, and you can go share that with those of you who are Facebook friends, and uh, you'll have an opportunity to help invite the community to our Easter services. So we're looking forward to those kind of things ahead for us. Uh, exciting week as we finish up March and uh, look toward April and look toward Easter, right? Well, let's pray, and we'll go with that. Father, thank you for our time today to be in your word. Thank you for our time to study and to learn more about the generations before us, their commitment to your word, their commitment to the gospel, uh, their commitment to truth, I pray that that will ignite a fire in us to be likewise for our generation. May we stand for truth, and may we continue to see the ministries of this church reach not only locally but globally as we support those who are putting their hand to the task. And, we meet, and uh, may we equally be encouraged to put our hand to the task, to invite others to share the gospel, to be a witness. I pray that you'll give us that opportunity and uh, the opportunity to serve you in all we do. Give us a good evening as we finish our, our, our day and look forward to the days ahead for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The well, Lord bless everyone. Hope you